If your Bibles, go with me to Ruth chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2, this will be the second week we've been in Ruth chapter 2. I'm not going to read all of Ruth chapter 2 uh, this morning, but I want to kind of bring us into where we're at in the story at this point. We are now back in Judah, we're back in God's promised land, and Ruth and Naomi have now made the journey back. As we've studied last week, they're both empty, empty in different ways, but both empty, particularly Naomi, of her own, as, again, as we talked about last week, her own self-sufficiency. She left, again, let me remind you, she went to Moab because she had plans for their sustenance. Her and Elimelech had plans for how they would be fine apart from God's promises and how they would secure the future for themselves apart from God's plans. Again, they, they left underneath God's discipline of the nation of Israel via famine in order to go get bread and such in a different place under different gods. But now they're empty of, of this sufficiency, this, this idolatry, and, and they're on this journey, as we've been talking about, this journey of repentance. Repentance is not a one and done thing. Repentance is never a straight line, but repentance as you see, particularly in passages like Psalm 51, there's this walking back to God. You see this with the prodigal son. You see this with Naomi here and Ruth. This walking, this journey of repentance and faith. Naomi's walking back to God, and in many ways, Ruth is walking to God for the first time. But now, Ruth sets out, at this point in chapter 2, she sets out, now that they're back here, or she's here for the first time, and Naomi's back home, Ruth sets out to pick up the scraps left behind by the barley reapers in the fields. She's going out to collect food. And Ruth has done so. As we see, as we saw in Ruth, in Ruth chapter 2, she's done so faithfully all day, and Boaz takes notice of Ruth. And Ruth asks this question, why have you taken notice of me, a foreigner? Verse 11 says this, Boaz replied to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me, and how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to the people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Let's pray. Father, please open your word to us this day. Father, crack the remaining hardness that's in our hearts and fill us with your presence and your glory. Father, open the word to us. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to be kind of all over chapter 2 today. That is our context, but pulling out some specific things, and we'll read those passages as we go, beginning with this one in 11 and 12. So Boaz comes onto the scene, and he notices some things about Ruth. 
And as we've talked about before, in Hebrew narrative, the dialogue is really important. The, the storyline, the, the things that the author intends to, to, to emphasize or wants us to walk away with or the points that we're supposed to, to understand and the application we're supposed to have is oftentimes driven by and developed by the dialogue. And so what Boaz says to Ruth and what Ruth says to Boaz is, is super critical if we're to understand the point of this story. So Boaz comes onto the scene and he notices some things about Ruth. He notices some qualities of Ruth. He notices some ways in which she is different than others. He notices her faithful spirit. He notices her understanding ultimately, of covenant love. And look at what he says at the end of this time. Again, the dialogue helps develop the narrative. We have to pay attention. At the end of verse 12, he says, let's just read all of verse 12. He says, May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel. And listen to this phrase under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Yes, Ruth, you've been faithful to your mother-in-law. Yes, Ruth, you have worked faithfully, gleaning from this field all day. Remember, that was the foreman's account of her work. But you have left the security of your own hands, your own false gods, your own self-righteousness, and you have come to seek refuge under the wings of the true God. This is what the author means to point out to us. That Boaz recognizes something of eternal weight here in this woman named Ruth. That she has come to seek refuge under the wings of his God, Yahweh. What Boaz is pointing out to us, the author is directing us to, is that Ruth is a recipient of God's hesed. That there's, there's something more to Ruth than just what we see on the surface. She is a recipient of God's hesed. And we talked about kind of trying to define this Hebrew word last week, and let me quote again. It means God's deep goodness expressed in His covenant commitment, His absolute loyalty, His obligating of Himself to bring to fruition the blessings that He has promised, whatever it may cost Him personally to do that. In short, God's hesed, is His loving kindness. His, as R.C. Sproul says, His loyal love. His loyal love. It's not just love. It's not simply love. It's not simply kindness. It's not simply loyalty. It's a both and. This loyal love. And Ruth has come under the loyal love of God. She's been brought into God's loyal love, and Boaz sees this. Right, you've done these things, these good things for your mother-in-law, and so on and so forth, and then he concludes with this kind of crescendo 
into this climax of under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Now the implication of verse 12 is that God will reward Ruth because she has sought refuge under his wings. Now, I get it, in this culture of grace, 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 and we start getting a little uneasy when we talk about God rewarding things such as this. But the clear implication of verse 12 is that God will reward Ruth because she has sought refuge under His wings. The question is, why should God show mercy to Ruth? Why would God show mercy to Ruth? This is not the only reason, but it's certainly because she has sought refuge under his wings. Here's what she did. I like how Sinclair Ferguson talked about this. She has counted God's protection better than all others. She has set her heart on God for hope and joy. And when a person does that, God's honor is at stake, and He will be merciful. Ferguson goes on. This statement's just fantastic. If you plead God's value as the source of your hope, instead of pleading your value as the source of God's hope, then his unwavering commitment to his own value engages all his heart for your protection and joy. Let me read that again. If you plead God's value as the source of your hope, instead of pleading your value as the source of God's hope, then his unwavering commitment to his own value engages all his heart for your protection and joy. And that's what's happening here in Ruth 12, the implication is that God will reward Ruth. He will care for her because she has sought refuge under his wings. Now listen, it's not that you have done all these good things, Ruth. Now God is going to reward you or repay you. No, that's not the picture. It's you have come to God because you believe his loyal love for his people is better than all else. God's reputation is on the state is at stake is on the line in that scenario. What things do you seek refuge under? This past week, what are the things that you have sought refuge under? I'll give you some examples. Maybe having control over your situation. Like things going the way you want them to go or going perfectly for you. What things have you sought to seek refuge under? Maybe keeping people at an arm's distance so they don't know the real you. Do you seek refuge under me, myself, and I? where you're the judge, jury, and executioner as well? Where have you sought refuge this past week? And realize when we seek refuge in a different place, we're saying the refuge underneath are God's wings 
is less valuable, is less worthy, is less protecting, is less hopeful, is less valuable, is less loving than the places that we are seeking refuge under. You see, God's Hesed, his loyal love for his people, has drawn Ruth to find shelter under his wings. And it doesn't, his loyal love for his people doesn't just stop at drawing people to him, but then after it draws people to him, then they become the recipients of the blessings of God's loyal love for his people. And that's what's happening to Ruth. Ruth saw God's mercy, his loyal love to his people, when Naomi says, I've heard that back here, that God, even in the midst of our disobedience, is showing us mercy. So Naomi says, let's go back. And Ruth says, no, I want to go back too. Your God shall be my God. And now she's living in this, I want to seek refuge underneath this God because he's better than all other gods. And now she finds herself in this field seeking refuge underneath this God's wings. And Boaz says, there's something different about you, Ruth. When one sees and believes and experiences God's hesed, Certain things become realities in your life, in this person's life. This is true of Ruth, and it's true of Boaz. God's loyal love in Ruth's life and in Boaz's life is bearing fruit. Something is different. God's blessing continues in these people's lives. The first thing I want you to see is that when God's hesed has captivated you, God's loyal love produces a meek and quiet spirit. We're going to look at multiple things that God's hesed produces in God's people. So another way you can look at this is going, okay, do I have these things and where's the disconnect? And I, I want to, part of my argument, at least, subversively here is that, that uh, it's because of a lack of understanding of God's hesed. Well, I'm not these things, so how do I become these things? Oh. God's hesed is how these things, at least in part, become realities in our lives. It's just the things, you, you can't just produce a meek and quiet spirit. You can't just make this happen. This is now let's talk about meek and quiet spirit. This is the mark, particularly in this context. Think about this in Ruth. Ruth is a female. First Peter three four through five says, "But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is God's sight, which in God's sight is very precious." For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. That, we're not going to exposit that whole passage. I just want you to see that this, this idea of this gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. I want to remind you though, this is not, this idea of a meekness and a quietness is not limited to ladies. Our Lord and Savior was meek. And quiet in spirit. So, so this is for all. So this is for all of us. But as we talk about this, uh, this doesn't mean this quiet, meek, and quiet spirit. This doesn't mean that every person, or for thinking in terms of ladies in this passage, 
doesn't mean that we all have the same personality. This doesn't mean that we all wear the same clothes or all have to keep our mouths shut and let our husbands speak for them. This is not what this passage is teaching. Some women are by nature extroverts and some are by nature introverted. These, these are all realities and some of which are good ways that God has made us and some of those are also things we need to grow in. But they all have these qualities in common, regardless of personality. Regardless of introvertedness versus extrovertedness. I mean, let me give a, a side thought here. We have to be very careful when we start using worldly terms to describe us humans to the neglect of using biblical terms to describe ourselves. Okay? So that's where we can take human terms, like I'm an introvert or an extrovert, or this, these qualities, that's who I am, when the Bible has called us to things like gentleness, a quiet peacefulness, a steady spirit. These are all qualities that we're called to have in common, men and women alike. Now this is in opposition to or opposing a harshness, a brashness, stirring controversy, grumbling, complaining, selfishness, a bend towards our ego. Meek and quiet spirits are not these things. If you watch Ruth, Ruth walks through God's difficult plans for her life with peace and gentleness. Again, again look, at the, look at the characterization. Like Naomi, what's, what's going on with Naomi? The, what's going on with Ruth? There's meant to be a bit of a juxtaposition here. Ruth walks through God's difficult plans, unlike Naomi, with peace and gentleness. See her meekness. Verse 10, then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Listen, she's, she's poor and destitute, right? She has no, why is she out in the food? She isn't going to the grocery store. She's going to essentially beg for food. And she says, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? She walks through God's providence with peace and gentleness. She walks through trusting the covenant word of God. Let me give you more of a definition of meekness here. Quoting, Submission to God's providence. Meekness is submission to God's providence. Listening to God's voice. Not least when His Word cuts across our native desires and when His providence is cut across our natural longings. A submission to God's providence. Listening to His voice. Meekness is saying, Lord, you have said it, you have done it, 
And since this is so, I will trust you. That's meekness. We see Ruth's meekness. That disposition towards the Lord, though, always demonstrates itself in our relations with others. Again, this vertical working itself out on the horizontal. So let's press into this meekness thing. Our pride-filled culture cannot stand the idea of meekness. Meekness is so far from our vocabulary, even as Christians. Our culture, we think we deserve it. We think we have certain things coming to us because, because I'm the parent or I deserve this or that, or I've worked this hard at my job, so I deserve this recognition, or I've been at my job this long, where's my raise at? I'm not saying some of those things aren't legitimate, but the question is, is how is your spirit working through these things? What's, what fruit is coming from your mouth? Even in the church culture, because I've been serving in this way or that, I deserve this or that. Or because I've been a Christian for this long, I deserve to be viewed as a wise sage. Or because I go to church more than this person, I can skip this thing. Some more examples. We might have a quiet and reserved demeanor, but what happens when someone presses in on our idolatry? What comes out then? Does meekness come out then? Does a quiet and gentleness, a spirit, come out then? How dare you challenge my spirituality? Sat down with someone, this is, oh my goodness, probably six, seven years, eight years ago now, something like that, and just began to ask them about their love for this covenant community. And literally, the, the person says to me, how dare you challenge my love for Jesus? Now, first of all, I wasn't, I guess in an ultimate sense, I was challenging this person's love for Jesus, but it, it was just, I was just at the surface level at this point, but two things are wrong with that. One, didn't hear what I said, but, but two, how dare you challenge... The fangs came out, not meekness. Another observation. A grumbling and complaining culture is in opposition to meekness. A grumbling and complaining culture. This is the fruit of a refusal to acknowledge the grace and favor of God. Have you ever ever thought about that? You have a grumbling and complaining spirit. Anybody here ever struggle with that? My hand's up. Uh huh. That is the fruit of my refusal to acknowledge the grace and favor of God in my life and the life of those around me. That is not meekness. Grumbling and complaining is the fruit of pride. It's a heart that says, because I'm awesome, I deserve this, and God's not giving it to me, so I'm going to grumble and complain. Grumbling and complaining is a heart not satisfied with Jesus and therefore wants something else that it cannot have. 
And God is good for withholding it from us. He's also good when He gives it to us so that we might explore the end of our idolatry and turn back to Him. But a meek spirit, so what we see with Ruth, is profoundly grateful for every blessing the Lord extends to it, understanding it as grace and mercy. A couple examples. Do you understand that your opportunity to serve in the nursery is God's grace and mercy to you? I'm just thinking through what are some of the things that could be the case instead. You could be at home waking up from a hangover, having left the strip club in an Uber because you were drunk out of your mind. Now, that would never be anybody in here, right? It could be. Most of us live one or two very bad decisions away from waking up and realizing we were never a follower of Jesus. So God's grace is all over our lives and we miss it. We miss it. Or do you understand your opportunity to parent your child out of their idolatry is a grace and mercy to you? Because you could be as blind to that idolatry in your own heart. Just as blind as your child is right now. The part of the the point there is like, so so why do we go at them, right? Why do we? Why not come with meekness and gentleness? It doesn't doesn't mean you don't confront the sin, that we're not clear on calling them to repentance. That's, That's not meekness. We're just talking about a trusting spirit that is resting underneath the wings of God and not underneath the wings of your ability to execute wrath or squash their rebellion, but resting underneath God's wings. Listen, the meek and gentle are meek and gentle because they're thankful, because they recognize what has been theirs, been given to them at a great cost to somebody else. You can't just develop meekness. Listen, the meek and gentle are quick to see every ounce of God's kindness. Let me ask you this question. Are you characterized as a person who is quick to see every ounce of God's loyal love in your life? Do you go looking for it? In those dark moments, you've just received bad news. Or those dark moments where you're like, I cannot come out of my sinfulness right now. I'm struggling. I see it. I don't want to do it, but I'm having such a hard time. Like In those dark moments, are you looking for evidences of God's loyal love for you? I'd say probably if, if you were, that trajectory would start working itself out. See, if you are, you'll be meek and gentle. You see, someone who is a recipient of God's loyal love has all they need. That's the point of being underneath God's wings is that everything we need is there. So I can be gentle and trusting, meek, submissive, 
someone who's a recipient of God's loyal love has all they need and they have it knowing it's not because they deserve it. But when they have all that they need, they don't need more money. They don't need more peace. They don't need more rest. They don't need a different position at work. They don't need better health. They don't need their situation to change or go away. They can walk through these sometimes dark providences of God with meekness because God's loyal love to them is sufficient. Are you meek and gentle? I have done much repentance on this this week. Next, God's loyal love produces the understanding of His law as grace. His law as grace. Grace. If you struggle with law and grace, just a side note, you should go read Ferguson's book, Whole Christ. Just a side note. God's loyal love produces the understanding of his law as grace. Ruth seems to think of the rights that are hers under the law of God as privileges to her by the grace of God. We say that again. Ruth seems to think of the rights that are hers under the law of God as privileges given to her by the grace of God. Look at the story. Ruth is gleaning from the field under a provision given to her by the law. She's allowed to be there. According to God's law. This is God's care for her according to law, but it's her right given to her by God's decree. Now listen, she's gleaning in the field, and at this point, when these words we're about to read are spoken, this is before all the extra stuff is given to her that the law does not necessarily provide for her. Things like the 30 pounds of of extra to take back home. At this point, she has simply been a recipient of God's law. And she says in verse 10, that she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Here's what she's saying. Why is it that I, a Gentile, a sinner, a foreigner, get to benefit from the graciousness of the law? Look, even at this point, you say, okay, well, well, Boaz is showing her protection, is showing her, like, telling the people that they need to stay away from her so that she can do this. Listen, that would be expected of him as well. Why am I benefiting from the graciousness? I don't deserve this. Ruth sees the law as grace. She sees God's law as rooted in grace. She knows that she doesn't deserve the grace of the law. Even something given to her by the law, she sees as grace. Something she doesn't deserve. Why? Because God's loyal love for Ruth is the same loyal love that wrote the law. For Ruth. 
Listen, believers understand that God's law is gracious. Now, obviously, you get into, get into Galatians, we go, when we understand the law rightly. Okay? Part of understanding the law rightly is seeing the law as gracious. You and I don't deserve anything from God other than the wrath due for our sin. And so someone who knows God's loyal love understands God's decrees, God's structures, God's plans, God's law as something much more glorious than His wrath for us. Much more beneficial than His wrath for us. You might say, well, I deserve this from my wife. God's word says so. Or I deserve this from my kids. God's word says so. I deserve this from my church. God's word says so. Listen, Ruth knows that she does not deserve the grace of the law. And so when she receives it, she receives it with humility. She receives it with thankfulness. She receives it with meekness. Let me quote, God has given us his law in his hesed. So he's given us his law in his loyal love to direct our lives that they may be wholesome and holy and well-pleasing to him. For our glory and our good always. His law is good. It should be seen as gracious for us when understood rightly. Now I get it. Most of you, if not all, grew up, and I would argue probably all, but grew up in legalistic cultures and churches. I get it. We, we were slammed up one against one wall and down the next wall because of legalism in the cultures we grew up in, whether it was your home or your parents or the church or your own heart's tendency towards legalism. And very quickly, legalism like this, this way in which we can make ourselves ready for God or make our way to God based upon our own works. It's legalism and anything that fits into that. So we want to stay away from legalism. But many of us misunderstand legalism and misunderstand grace. Just because someone holds out standards and accountability doesn't make them legalistic. Listen, if you're prideful, no one is ever going to be positioned good enough to challenge your self-righteousness. Ever. They're always going to be too legalistic. They're never going to know you good enough. They're never going to say it the right way. They're never going to hear you correctly. But just because someone holds out standards and accountability doesn't make them legalistic. Grace is not a lowering of the standards of the law. The response to legalism is not a substandard. A lazy Christian with poor commitments. Listen, grace actually leads us to go above and beyond the standards of the law. 
Listen, so put this in practical example. Grace-filled parents or parenting means that you actually expect more than the law from your kids, not less. You see, when your heart has been captured by His loyal love, then you'll see the law as grace, as a good for you. You'll see the following law as an opportunity in many ways to love the Father in return for His love for you. Not to get His love, but because He has given His love to you. What? A grace. Now again, this is different than you have to do these things to be right with God. We, we cannot be right with God apart from Jesus Christ. But now, because we're in Christ, now we have experienced God's loyal love to us. And we see His gracious provision for us in the law. Again, many of us think we have left legalism behind in a previous church, and we're now embracing grace. So we do things like not commanding respect from our kids or we make the aligning of our lives with the body of Christ an option or tithing an afterthought. Instead of seeing these instructions of the Lord as grace to us, we mistake them for suggestions for us. Instead of grace to us, we make them suggestions for us. Things that are sometimes good for us and necessary for us and sometimes things that we can take or leave depending on our evaluation of it. All because we think a God different from the God of Hesed wrote the law. The same God. The same God who gave His Son Jesus to die for you is the same God who wrote the law to guide you. Instead of seeing these things as instructions of the Lord as grace to us, Ruth, Ruth recognizes this graciousness to her. But listen, when we start changing the standards and we start shifting things around, we're not living by grace. We're just living by another form of legalism. It's just legalism set to a tune that's more comfortable for you to sing. But Ruth sees God's graciousness in the law. Some of us can't figure out why life is so hard or so crazy. Maybe, caveat, maybe it's because our life is out of order. It's because we're living underneath God's discipline because we won't listen to His laws and then we do so claiming grace. We presume upon His graciousness. And God is good and kind to let us see the folly of such. We should see His law, His graciousness flowing from His hesed for us. This is why David can say in Psalm 1, 1-4, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the what? The law of the Lord. 
and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. And just in case you don't get the juxtaposition here, the wicked, a.k.a. those who don't delight in his law, it's not so. For they're like chef that the wind drives away. How can one's delight be in the law when one believes that his law comes from his hesed, from his loyal love for his people? When one sees it as grace, then one will search its depths. When one sees it as grace, then one's life will, you'll seek to be rightly ordered according to it. Then one's emotions will be governed by it, interpreted at least by it. See, God's law is born out of His hesed, His loyal love for His people. Next, God's loyal love produces holy living. I'm just going to keep pushing this thought a little further here. Six and seven. And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. Excuse me. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. Again, Listen to the dialogue. This is drawing something out for us that's very important. The author wants us to see the character of Ruth. He wants us to see her faithfulness, her holiness. God's loyal love produces character that stands out in this broken world, and Boaz notices this. Even the foreman notices this in Ruth's life. Boaz knows, though, that this is not the work of Ruth. Ultimately, he knows that it is God's doing in her. Back to verse 12. Again, the Lord repay you of what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Why is Ruth doing this? Again, the question back in the narrative where did it start? Where did all of these subsequent actions in Ruth's life, including the faithfulness in the field, where did this start at? There is mercy with that God there. I will worship Him. There is safety under His wings. She sees a place of refuge. Legalism is I do all these things because it'll make me right with God. But grace says I do all these things in mercy because I love Him, because He first loved me and brought me under His wings for refuge. So what happens is Ruth rests in the covenant loyalty of the Lord and in turn it produces covenant faithfulness in her life. She lives and walks in a way that shows God's holiness. 
I wonder how many of us in this room are, like, have asked this question or regularly asked this question. Would this be true of my life? Would those who know me best say this of me? Would those who would be willing to actually tell me the truth say this about me? Am I walking in holiness because of God's hesed? Not am I walking in holiness because that's just what Christians do. But am I walking in holiness and am I walking in holiness because of God's loyal love for me? Do you see what happened to Naomi when she ran to Moab for refuge? It led to unholiness, right? It led to destruction and death. But do you see what's happening to Ruth as she runs to God for refuge? It led to holiness. It's led to life and sustenance. God's loyal love produces this pursuit of holiness. Lastly, God's loyal love produces a love for the heart of the law. Produces a love for, an understanding of, a a seeking of the heart of the law. This is a little more of a look at Boaz than it is at Ruth at this point. Notice Boaz's instinctive attitude to the needy, the marginalized, and the poor. Law and love are one in Boaz. Because God is his covenant God, God's law is Boaz's way of life. He exemplifies the book of Proverbs. He knows the blessing of the Lord because he walks in the way of the Lord. And there is no detail of God's law too small for Boaz to put into practice. Let me quote for you. Love does not ignore the law because it is more important than the law. Love does not abandon the law because its nature is to love. Rather, love shows what the intention of the law really is. It's the love is the fulfillment of the law, not the rejection of it. They're not in opposition to each other, and that's where we have done with the law. Jesus, what are the love God and love neighbor? So therefore, that means reject the rest of the law. That's somehow that's what we've done. No, no, Jesus is saying these things are the fulfillment of the law. This is what it means to. This is the heart of the law: to love God, to love neighbor. They're not in opposition to each other. Boaz knows this. Boaz sees the heart of the law. And in this case, law's love commands that a portion of the harvest must be left for the poor and the needy, for the stranger and the oppressed. Boaz knows law's, the law's loving commands. But notice how Boaz interprets this law. He doesn't interpret it by asking the question, how small of a margin can I get by with? 
How little financially can I give? How little do I need to be committed to God's family and its exercises to still be a part? How little do I need to do for my neighbor? How little do I need to read my Bible to be a faithful Christian? Instead, love shows the fullness of the grace of God in the law. In Boaz's hands, the law of God, let me quote, is an instrument to display the riches of the Hesed of his Lord. Let me say that again. In Boaz's hands, the law of God is an instrument to display the riches of God's Hesed. The riches. God's instructions are something to be used to display the riches of God's loyal love for us. Parents, think about that with your kids. Like we, okay, what, what can we get by with? What can we uh, use God's law as an instrument of love for them? It's not something to beat them over the head with. It's not something we do that with our, our co-workers, our classmates. It's, not, it's an instrument to show God's love for them. Boaz literally heaps blessing on Ruth and Naomi. He takes the law. What was the, the law was to leave a margin so that it would be provision for those who are poor and oppressed and such. And he goes, that's the letter of the law. What's the heart of the law? Give him 30 pounds. Give him more. Send them home with so much they can't handle it. God's love, God's law for Boaz was not see how little you can get by with, but see how much you can give because one day I'm going to give it all. And Ruth says, I met a man who walks in the law of the Lord. I met a man who has shown me how the law can be the chief delight of a child of God. He was kind to me. He showed hesed to me. Now listen, someone humble like Ruth is going to see God's hesed, even if Boaz would have just done the bare minimum of the law, right? Because at the point where she recognizes God's favor is before all the extra stuff, before the heart of the law was exemplified and shown to her. But imagine what it would do for someone not so humble. They go, wow, your God told you to, to do this, but you went above and beyond this. Not because... Right, and, and, and then, and then in that, we get to say, no, it's not because I'm awesome. It's because that really is God's heart. That really is what He has commanded me to do. It's just, Jesus shows us these things in the Sermon on the Mount. That, that there, you say you've not murdered anybody, but if you've hated after, Jesus is saying, well, there's, there's something more. This is the heart of the law. Don't have hatred towards your brother or your sister. There's more. There's there's this heart, and Christians love and seek and live out the heart of the law. Listen, you and I may not have fields where we can save a margin for the poor, but we have time and money, and we are called to leave margin for the poor. 
Ask this week, where is it that I miss the heart of God's commands? Where is it that I'm missing the heart of God's commands? The heart of the law. God says in Hebrews not to forsake the gathering together of believers, right? So there's a command of God. How little can I get by with? So I'm going to show up. Is that the heart? Here's the the question. Do you come with a readied mind? Or did you stay up too late last night? If not, you're, you're missing the heart of the command. Like, if you look at the bigger context, the, the idea of not forsaking is that you're coming for the good of other people. So how am I coming for the good of those people? Not how am I coming to get. So again, are we missing the heart of God's commands? God's people don't ask, how little can I get by with? God's people say, I am the recipient of God's unconditional, loyal love, paid for by the blood of Jesus. How much can I give? Now, here's part of the problem. You and I struggle to be convinced of God's loyal love. His hesed. I was talking to someone this past week, and although they didn't use these words, this was their struggle. I doubt that it's true. I'm doubting it right now, in this moment. We wonder about the extent of God's loyal love. Listen, the love we often receive around us is based and given to us and earned by us, oftentimes on our loyalty to other people's glories. Well, if you'll do this for me, I will love you. Or we see the wickedness of our own loves. We'll love someone else so long as they are committed to making me feel good right now. Some of us presume upon His love. His loyal love. Well, He loves me, so He'll forgive me. Therefore, I don't really need to put in the effort or put to death this or to embrace this. He'll forgive me. But let me remind you, Look at the faithfulness of Ruth and her running to God as a refuge. God's honor was on the line. God's blessing was flowing. The problem with presuming upon God's hesed is that it misunderstands the appropriation of the benefits of God's hesed. Covenant blessings flow for those He has brought into His covenant. Those He has brought under His wings. And so therefore, those who are saying... His wings are the safest place. Hope in Him is more valuable than hope in any other God. Now follow me. And if you are saying that, 
that his wings are the safest place, then by necessity you're saying his laws and decrees are the safest place for me. And if that is true, you cannot at the same time both God is my refuge and his laws I can take or leave. You're either saying his wings are the safest place or the wings of this is the safest place for me. Ruth understood the safest place for her was under his wings, not the gods of her fashioning. So some of us presume upon his love, but some of us, listen to me, some of you wonder whether he truly loves us, whether he truly loves you. And so we wonder if what he has said is truly out of love for his people. So he's commanded us to live in sexual purity. Is that really out of love for us? He's commanded us to honor our parents. Is that really out of love for us? He's called us to not forsake gathering with the body. Is that really out of love for us? He's commanded us to leave margin in our lives to care for other people. Is that really out of love for us? He's commanded me to live not alone, but including other people even in my thought life to to lead me to the cross. Is that really out of love for us? Does God really love? me. Adam and Eve asked the same question. Does God really love us? I mean, he's withholding something good from us, Satan says. And if he loved us, why would he withhold this from us? And for many of us, the disconnect lies right there. God doesn't really have this loyal love for me, so why should I seek and delight in his laws and precepts? Let me remind you of a passage. 1 John 3.16. I know you all got John 3.16 committed to memory. You should commit to memory 1 John 3.16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. How is it this is, this is where we just mess this whole thing up. Is Here's God's laws and precepts. Go do this, go do this, go do this, go do this. And I think the picture the, past, the, the Scriptures paint for us is that apart from God's love for us, you and I can't. We can't do it. So, so where do we, what has to, what has to happen? We must see God's love for us on the cross. That God loved his people so much that he did not spare his only son to bring us into covenant with him. That he did not spare his only son to bring us under his wing and Jesus shows us 
in his faithful living, he shows us the grace of God's law and the heart of God's law. And that when he kept them all, he became the worthy sacrifice. And because it was acceptable to God, he raised, it three, raised him three days later. Listen, you and I can know God's laws, but still fail. But the one who takes refuge under the wings of the cross is one who knows the loyal love of God and one who in turn sees God's love for us in His commands and His precepts. You say, well, how do I, how do I put the, like, how do I, what do I do with this? Let me say simply this. Repent for trusting in the wings of another God and meditate on God's loyal love displayed at the cross until it melts your heart to meekness. Until you can't help but see God's law and his hesed for you and for me. That's why Paul said, I come to preach you nothing but the cross. The Christ and Christ crucified. Why? Because it's at the cross that God's loyal love is shown for his people. This merciful, unceasing kindness for God's people. That he loved them so much, he spared not even his son for us. Then we begin to see God's love for us And we begin to see, oh, so this is how David could delight in the law. This is how Jesus could live a faithful life always because he never doubted God's love for him, ever. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we... find what we think is said in so many places that's not the right place. We seek it in our own hands. We seek it in the hands of other people. We seek it in something immaterial. Something that's fashioned with our hands. Father, we seek it in so many places all the while not recognizing realizing what we're saying we're saying that the gods in Moab are better than the God of Israel than the God of the redeemed paid for by Jesus Father may we by your grace Forsake the wings of all these other things. The places each day that we grasp for for hope and grasp for to, to, to get us out of despair or whatever the case is. And let us say that there is no place to be but under the wings of our God. 
trusting in his redeeming blood that shelters us. That paid the price for us. That we might be called your children. Now give us the grace to Father, give us the eyes to see your love for your people on the cross. That someone would lay down his life for us. But not just anyone. Your son. And not just any death, but a death where he when under your wrath due for every sin that we have done. He stepped out from underneath your wings so that we could step under. May we see your love for your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.